Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. It's so crazy. It's like sometimes this side's full and that side's not as much. And sometimes this side's full and that side's not as much. I don't understand what you guys do. Um, yeah, um, our family is all at a, at a reunion that's going on this weekend, so a lot of them aren't here, but... Um, but I had a lot of fun. We were, I was there yesterday. We were playing volleyball, and um, and it was just it's so funny because you you don't see a lot of these people on a day to day basis, but you you have a relationship with them because you have this understanding that forever we're going to know each other because we're family. And so um, even if you haven't seen them in a long time, and even if you you kind of go different ways and you do different things in life, and you don't have a lot of things in common, maybe with a lot of people. But when you see them, it's like you have not lost any time because you understand, like, this is a relationship that will be here forever. We're related. We're family. And, and I, I want that to be the way we see each other here, is that, that for eternity, we'll know each other. And that's not saying no one's ever going to leave, no one new's ever going to come, but it's just saying that we have a relationship that's based on more than just convenience. Like, sometimes you have convenient relationships, right? They're just there because they're convenient, because you see each other for a time, and you know each other for a time, and you're, you're forced to be around each other for a while. And, and those relationships are fine, and sometimes that's all there is to those relationships. But there has to be a greater depth than that in our relationships at some point, where it goes beyond just convenience. Welcome back, you guys. Our newlyweds are back from their honeymoon. <laughs> that's awesome, yeah. We've had a bunch of newlyweds this year, um, a bunch of people get married, and we had a really exciting engagement happen on Wednesday. Yeah, our very own Annie and David. Congratulations, you guys. We are so excited for you. We really are. The whole family is just like, it feels like one of our sons and daughters, you know, except not brothers and sisters <laughs> in a creepy way. Um, Anyways, moving right along. But, this, but it is, what Thomas Thomas, this idea of family. And so we've been talking about that for a while, and I'm not going to recap everything. If you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, I would encourage you to, to listen to the podcast, because it's really just a lot of the heart of what God's really been, been placing in my heart um, for our family. And, uh, and I want to continue something we were talking about last week, um, where we talked about, we ended with talking about bearing each other's burdens. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 25, and then we're going to move through into um, chapter 6. Galatians 5:25. And this is this letter to the church at Galatia, I, I, I love it because it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that was kind of just getting started. And it was a church that he had helped establish, and then he left, um, and he heard that there was there was things that were coming into the church that were not supposed to be there. Legalism was trying to work its way in. The Judaizers had come to the church and said, sure, you know, this, this thing that Paul's teaching you is good, it's great, but on top of that, you also have to, and they would start giving them rules. You've know, you got to be circumcised, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And, and, and Paul hears about this, and hears that, that they're trying to turn back, and he writes, and, and throughout this letter, you just hear this, this almost righteous anger that he has towards people who have come in and spoiled the simple, pure gospel and have tried to add on to it and say, well, well, that's good, but... 
And, and so he's, this letter is just like a fathering letter, like a father writing to his children. You know, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, though you have a thousand teachers, you have not many fathers. You know, we've taken that verse and flipped it all around to mean all these things. And, every, and there was this movement based on that verse that was like, we need spiritual fathers. Even Paul said there was a thousand teachers, but only one father. We need a thousand fathers. That's, that's not what he was saying. The context of that is he's telling them, listen, a bunch of people are coming and telling you things, and that's good. You might have a thousand people that teach you, but he says, I fathered you. I brought you into this faith like a father does a child. He sets the context really simply. He says, so receive me as a father when I speak to you. For you may have a thousand teachers, but you have one father. In other words, what I say should matter more to you than these people who are traveling around teaching because while they may be good teachers, they're not the ones who actually brought you the gospel, preached you the simple uh, uh, faith, and brought you into the family of faith as a father. So when I speak, it should carry more weight than these teachers. That's all he was saying. I'm not saying there's no need for spiritual fathers. I'm just saying to take that verse and twist it to mean something that Paul wasn't saying in the name of, well, that's the problem with us. We just don't have fathers. So you have a father. Call no earthly man your father if you have one who is your father and he's in heaven. Jesus was ultimately always trying to get us to a place of understanding God as Father. When he prayed, our Father, who, he didn't say our Lord, our God, our Supreme Maker, our Creator. He didn't say any of those things. He said, when you address him, come to him this way. Our Father. Why? Because He's always trying to get us to relate to Him as a Father. Because if we see Him as a Father, then we understand that we're sons and daughters. If we understand that we're sons and daughters, we'll live like it. And that was what He was here for. And so, anyway, so Paul is writing this letter as a father figure to a church that he had helped birth. And so in 525, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, you got born again into this thing by faith, by the Spirit. The Spirit of God brought you into this thing. That's how you, that's how you, were, you live. So now also walk by Him. In other words, it's not just say a prayer and then go back to life the way it was. It's not just the Holy Spirit comes, He brings conviction, He brings revelation, we submit, we yield our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, we accept Him as our Savior, we believe that He died on a cross for our sins, we receive the forgiveness that His death paid for. He's saying, listen, if you live that way, in other words, we become alive again in Him, you're born again, you once were dead, now you're alive. All things passed away, behold, everything has become new. All those verses that we know. And so he's saying, if that's how you were born again, if that's how you live, then also walk that way. Don't just say, okay, thank you for that, Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to go back to life and know that one day when I die, I'll go to heaven. That was never the intention of this thing. He's saying, so if that's how we live, then let's also walk by Him. In other words, the same one that brought us into faith is the same one that should walk with us through life. And so Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if, any, even if anyone is caught in trespass, see, it's so important that we don't read these things based on chapters. Those are in there to give us good reference points so that if you're trying to figure out where something is, and they kind of follow natural breaks, but a lot of times it interrupts thoughts. And if you just read five and you stop, and then a month later you pick back up in Galatians and you read six, you forgot what he was just talking about, and so you, you think now he's on a new thought, which is, brethren, even if anyone is caught in sin, what's he saying? He's saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Why? Because if we're walking with our lives yielded to the Holy Spirit, we won't be in a place of wanting to challenge and envy and boast. 
So let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, she's just continuing that thought, walking by the humility of the Holy Spirit. Even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. God, I I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that that the words mean just as much to us today as they did the day that they were penned by Paul, inspired by Your Spirit. And I ask that today as as we read and think and speak and chew on these words, Holy Spirit, that You would that you would speak through me, that you would open our ears to hear, that we would be careful how we hear, that you would open our minds to understand, that we would understand we have the mind of Christ. We can take these words and we can actually understand them because you're giving us revelation, not just information. And God, that our hearts would be good soil. That if there's any hardness, if there's any bitterness, if there's anything in our hearts that would keep us from receiving this, that right now you would come and you would break up that hard soil, that you would soften that surface, that you would prepare our hearts to receive this Word, that we would actually receive that seed and that it would bear fruit in our lives, God, that a world that is lost without you, that is desperate to know you, and even sometimes don't know who you are, would taste the fruit of our lives and see that you're good. And they would want you because of you and us. I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Paul writes this, and I, I think this is a, a monumental thing. I think that um, it's something that maybe we don't consider or talk about enough. And so I just want to go through this a little bit. Um, he says, even if anyone's caught in trespass. So he's just said, don't be boastful, prideful, challenging, and, and envying and all that stuff. Even if someone's caught in a trespass. So what is he saying? Someone's sin is never permission for you to act in a way other than the Spirit would lead you. It doesn't, that's why he says, even if someone's caught a trespass. Why? Because we could write off a response to somebody that is not gentle, that's not led by the Holy Spirit, if they're sinning against us, because we could say, well, they did, and fill in the blank with the sin that was committed against you. And Paul's saying, listen, even if someone's caught in a trespass, their sin is never an excuse for you to respond to anything less than Jesus. Ever. Every, that's why I said we are all without excuse. Like this gospel is the most freeing and the most challenging all at once thing that I've ever seen or read or understood in my life because it gives me a way to live that removes excuse, but in doing so, it actually removes every excuse that I would try to stand before him and make because of my actions on behalf of myself. I stand before him with no excuse. Even if someone's caught in a trespass, don't forget what I just wrote to you. Don't throw away the, the, the instruction to walk according to the Spirit just because somebody sinned. Don't discard it. Don't give yourself permission to be anything less than gentle, loving, and kind just because somebody sinned. Now, don't ignore it either. And so that's when he comes into, brethren, even if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are led by the Holy Spirit, if you wonder why there's a burden on you when you see somebody who's living less than Jesus died for them to live, it's because the Spirit of God lives in you. It's because it's His nature to go to broken things and fix them. It's His nature to see something dead and bring life to it. The very na- You've become a partaker of the divine nature 
The Word tells us that. We have all become partakers of divine. It means the old nature that was in you that was selfish and self-serving and thought only about yourself is now gone and been replaced with the divine nature. And what does the divine nature do? It sees sin and it comes and sacrifices itself to make a payment for sin. It lays its own life down for another. So he says, you who are spiritual, you who are being led by the Holy Spirit, when you see that, there's going to be a desire in you to respond. Just remember in your response, don't leave behind the character and nature of Jesus. Don't leave behind the leading and guiding the Holy Spirit. Don't tell Him, thank you for pointing that out to me, Holy Spirit. I will take it from here. That's what happens sometimes. Is that, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit just shows us things that are going on. And He's leading us to a place so that we can step into something, so we can speak into something, so we can encourage something. And we have to remember that the same one who led us to that place is the same one that should lead us into and through dealing with the situation. And we don't say, thank you for pointing out, Holy Spirit, I am such a good communicator of the gospel. I am so perfected in the nature of Christ. I will handle it from here. I'll see you when I get done. Wait here for me. I'll be back. But we do that sometimes. And that's a lot of times when we get into trouble. We act unchristlike towards somebody because of something in their life. And then when they don't receive it, we blame them and say, well, see, it's just because they're deceived. Well, they have a responsibility to take what you're saying, even if you don't say it the right way, and apply it to their life and let the truth change them, because the Bible does say, be careful how you hear. So we can't let, remember we talked about this, we cannot let somebody's delivery of a word keep us from receiving the word just because their delivery wasn't perfect. Because as much as they have a responsibility to speak the truth in love, we have a responsibility to hear in love. Because Jesus told us to be careful how we hear more than he told us to be careful how we speak. So even if the delivery wasn't perfect, even if the deliverer wasn't perfect, we can't find a reason that something is wrong with them to discredit what they're saying. And that's what will happen if we're prideful. That's why humility is so important. That's why he says in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of humility. Why is it important to be humble? Because if I'm not humble, I will listen to what you're saying, and rather than receiving what you're saying, I will, in my pride, try to find something wrong with you so I can discredit you so that I can discredit and discard the Word. And if you find yourself in that place where when someone's speaking to you, you're trying to think of something that would discredit what they're saying because of something you've seen in their life or something you know about them, repent. Ask God to forgive you for that and change your heart so that you can receive truth from anybody, even if you know something about them, that the enemy would try to say, how could they say that to you? Don't they remember when they did fill in the blank? I used to do that. To be honest, there were times when I was hardly even listening to what was being said to me because my mind was so busy trying to figure out what I could have against them to keep what they were saying from having a place in my life. I know that's just me. But I'm just saying someday it could happen to you. If it does, it's not a small thing. It's pride. It's saying, I would rather find something wrong with you than allow what you're saying to show me something wrong with me. If we're careful how we're here, we can receive even from the worst deliverers. So he says, even if, even if someone's caught a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a... What is the goal here? It's restoration. He doesn't say condemn. He doesn't say accuse. He doesn't say, make it known to everybody. He says, restore such a one 
in a spirit of gentleness. What is he saying? The goal in all of this is that there would be restoration. It's always the goal. The gospel is the story of man being redeemed and restored. Man was created in God's image and likeness. He forfeits that over to the enemy. Jesus comes, wins back what was lost, and now gives us a way to be redeemed and restored back to original created value as sons and daughters created in the image of the Father carrying His presence. And so the goal is always restoration. Always. And see, that's why it's important to know that we're family. Because in a family, it's not like, well, our relationship hinges on this, and if you don't, then we will no longer... Listen, you're family, and you are family no matter what you say or do. You can turn your back on somebody. It doesn't make them not your brother anymore. You can say, well, they're dead to me. You can. But they're not. Because they're your family. And you have a relationship with them that you didn't choose and you can't discard. Now the level of relationship is up to you to choose and it's a sad thing if you would choose less than to have a great relationship with somebody. Especially if you're born again and especially if they're not. Gosh, we should never be so offended by people that we cut them off because they don't understand and see what we understand and see. In fact, we should see it even more. It should bring us to a place of wanting them to see what, we, what we've seen and to have what we've had. Not to turn our backs on them and walk away. You have the hope of the world. If the one with the hope of the world in the situation turns and runs away, what hope does that person have left? Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. And if that person's not born again, they're just acting like someone who's not born again. Don't be shocked. Don't be hurt. Don't be offended. And don't let it make you run unless you're running to them. You've got the hope of the world. Are you guys okay this morning? Yeah, is this landing on hard save you a little bit? Because I see there's a lot of people like a little quiet this morning. Listen, you are, we are without excuse. Well, you don't know what they did. I don't. But he does. So he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Then he says this, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, he's not saying, okay, so say you find somebody and you hear that they're stealing. Let's just use that as a good, safe example. And you just happen to be at the store and you see them. You see them take something, put it in their pocket, and you're ta- you go up, hey, how you doing? Good, good, blah, blah, blah. You're talking to them. You see them go. They walk out of the store. They don't pay for anything. And you realize they just stole something. Now, it's not saying if you go to them and talk to them about that, do it carefully or you'll turn into a thief yourself. Or the spirit that's on them will get on to you. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, listen, if somebody's struggling with something, when you talk to them, be careful. Or that thing, that's saying that there's more of, there's more power in what they, in what the thing that's on them than the, than what is on me that's causing me to go and go talk to him in the beginning. That's giving more credit to Adam than to Jesus. Be real careful anytime we find ourselves that we're putting more credit on what was done wrong through Adam than what was done right through Jesus because that's who we're in. We're in Christ. And if that thing can get on me while I'm in Christ, then something's wrong as long as my heart's pure. So he's not saying like you go to them and you talk to them. If you're not gentle, suddenly you're going to find yourself becoming a kleptomaniac walking through the store going, I don't know why I'm doing this. I just want to steal. Oh, it's because I confronted Johnny and I didn't do it gently and now I'm a thief too. It's not what it's saying. What's he saying? Be careful. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. What's he saying? 
Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Don't look down on them and think less of them because they've done something wrong. Or you too will be tempted to what? To become self-righteous, to become judgmental, and to become a Pharisee who's looking down at a woman who's at Jesus' feet and saying, if, they knew who she, if he knew who she was, he would never let her touch him. Remember that? The, the woman comes. She understands how much she's been forgiven. She comes in. She breaks the perfume. She's weeping at his feet, crying with his tears. And the Pharisees are looking. And all they can think is, if Jesus knew who she was, He would never let her touch His feet. Doesn't He know who she is? And Jesus says, you guys don't understand. Who has been forgiven much loves much. And he wasn't saying, you guys, she loves me more than you do because she had more to forgive. He's saying she understands how much she needed to be forgiven. And if you understood how much you needed to be forgiven, not only would you, would you not care that she's at my feet, you'd probably be at my feet too. Because I know who she is. And I know who you are. The problem is, is that you know who you think that she is, but you don't understand who you are. And if you understood your need for salvation, if you understood your need for forgiveness, you wouldn't judge her in the least. You'd be down here at my feet crying and kissing him too. The Pharisees were caught in the very thing that Paul's warning about. Of self-righteousness and of pride. And the sin that they were judging the woman for that she had committed in her past that had already been forgiven was nothing compared to the sin of pride, self-righteousness, and judgment that they were sitting in at that moment. And that's why Jesus said to I mean, you guys don't understand. To whom much has been forgiven, they love much. It's not like, well, if you have a really bad story, then you can love Jesus more than somebody who doesn't have a really bad story. No, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us needs the forgiveness that was paid for at the cross. It cost God the same thing to forgive the Pharisees as it did to forgive the woman. It was the blood of His Son. He didn't look down and say, well, he's a two-dropper because he's just about perfect and she needs a pint. Mm -mm. Every person cost the Father the same thing to reconcile their sin. Every single person. It was the blood of His Son Jesus. It was the life of Jesus. That's the cost. And Jesus is looking at them and He knows what's in their hearts. Right? He, he understands what they're saying. He knows why they're not down there at His feet. It's because they're prideful. It's because they were so secure in their good works that they didn't understand their need for a Savior. And this is what Paul's warning about. He's saying, listen to me, you guys. When you go to somebody, be real careful that you don't forget your need for forgiveness as you go to talk to them about their need for forgiveness. Because the minute you forget your need for forgiveness, you'll begin to look down on others who need the forgiveness that you've forgotten about. When you receive and you understand the forgiveness that you've received, you have no problem seeing other people walk in it. It's the older brother. This is what Paul's warning about. Don't become the older brother. Most of us know that the father ran to the youngest son. A lot of us fail to realize that he had to go to his eldest son as well. The youngest son didn't want to go in the house because he didn't think he deserved to be there. The oldest didn't want to go in the house because he thought he was the only one that deserved to be there. And the father had to go to both of them. 
Say, come on in. What was the father saying? It's my heart that all of my kids would be in my home with me. The one who messed up really, really bad and the one who doesn't even realize how badly he's messed up at times. I want you both in my home. I want you both to be here with me. I go to run to the one who's coming back and meet him on the path and I put the robe and the ring on him and I go to the one who won't come in the house and I try to explain to him, don't you understand, son? You've always been with me. All I have is yours. You're disqualifying yourself because you're looking around going, I didn't get anything because you didn't do the things the younger one did. And the younger one's looking at the older brother and going, I'm not worthy to be called a son. Why? Because he's looking at the example his older brother set and saying, I have lived like him, so if that's what it looks like to deserve to be called a son, I certainly don't deserve to be called a son. doesn't understand that both of them would need the same thing to come into the Father's house, and it was the blood of Jesus Christ. Both of them. And a lot of times we have younger brothers that think they don't deserve to come into the house because we have older brothers who let them know that they really don't. Because this son of yours, he forgets he's his brother. Why? He can't even see him for who he is because he's so hung up on the fact that it's not fair because everything that he did wrong and all the stuff that I've done right. Be real careful. Paul's warning about that. Be really, really careful when you're talking to someone that you don't forget your own need for grace. Otherwise, you'll be caught up in a sin maybe worse than the one that you're talking to them about. All right. Bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What a massive statement. That there's actually a part of fulfilling the law of Christ that cannot be fulfilled unless we're actually bearing one another's burdens. And, and, and this verse is, is not popular. It's not talked about a ton because it strikes the core of our need to be self-sufficient. It strikes the core of our need to say, I can do anything on my own. All I need is me and God. Well, that would be true, except for that maybe part of what you need from God came in the form of other people around you. That maybe part of the all things pertaining to life and godliness being given to you by the knowledge of His Son includes the relationships with other brothers and sisters that He's surrounded you with. And that maybe all you need being fulfilled by Him includes the people He's placed into your life and the wisdom they carry. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to say, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't need any help. I shouldn't need that because, and fill in the blank, right? Because I have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true, but I'm pretty sure that Paul was writing to people who were born again and had the Holy Spirit when he said that if they would bear one another's burdens, they would help to fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So he says there's a part of fulfilling and, and, and loving people that's not complete unless we're bearing each other's burdens. That word there is baros, which means weight or load. So part of, the law, of fulfilling the law of Christ to love people is to actually come alongside them and bear their burdens and walk with them and help them carry the load. And when things are heavy, come alongside and help them. And we can do this in a bunch of ways, right? So I want to go through, I think, four things, four ways that we help bear each other's burdens. The first is through prayer and intercession. Colossians 1, 
chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Think about this. Paul is saying, listen, we heard that you guys received the gospel with joy, and since the day that we heard about your salvation, since the day we heard that you'd been born again, we have not ceased to pray for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will. Why is Paul saying we didn't cease to pray for you? Because prayer matters. Prayer matters. Why is he praying for them? Why? Because they don't even know the things to pray at times. They don't, they're so new in the faith, they don't even understand what they should be praying. And so Paul, as someone who cares about them, steps in and says, they don't understand that they need to know your will and be filled with the knowledge of what you want for them. So I'm praying. I have not stopped praying for you guys. It's a waste of time if prayer doesn't matter. But Paul said, since for that reason, I have not ceased to pray for you, and that you would a- and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Well, if God wants them to be filled with the knowledge of His will, they will. Then why is Paul wasting all his time praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will? Because something happens when people pray. In in a gospel. I am all about understanding that we're filled with the Spirit and that we have all these things given to us and that you know we're more than we know and we're sons and we're daughters and we're joint heirs with Christ and all that stuff. But there is something that happens when people pray that apparently doesn't happen if people don't. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. And so, uh, over in, in uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 23, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame for, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Now you have the same Paul who's just fervently praying for the others, asking them to pray for him. If prayer doesn't matter, that's a useless sentence. I'm saying that to say we need to understand the importance of prayer. If we don't get it, we will miss things. Listen, when Jesus was going to the garden, He took three people with Him. He took James, John, and Peter with Him. And He said, stand, watch, and pray. And when they fell asleep and didn't pray, what did he say? Did he say, it's okay, guys. You didn't pray like I asked you to, but that doesn't matter because it's not important. I still love you. I still love them, but what did he say? He rebuked them three times. If prayer doesn't matter, if it doesn't do anything, if it's not important, then why would the Son of God actually rebuke His disciples when instead of praying like He asked them to, they went to sleep? Maybe it matters much more than we realize. Maybe there was a reason that he asked them to come and pray for them. Maybe there's a reason Paul was asking the church to pray for them. And maybe if Jesus did it and Paul did it, it's okay for us to do it too. And it's not a sign of weakness. We've got to get over being self-sufficient. We've got to understand that we're all members of one body. That none of us are an island to ourselves. That none of us are complete without being part of a body. Every single one of us. And if Paul said it, and if Jesus said it, it's probably important that every now and then some of us say, you know what? Pray for me. Pray for me. It's not weakness. It's not weakness at all to go to someone that loves you, to talk to someone that cares about you and say, hey, 
you know, right now I'm just I'm dealing with some stuff and I'd love for you to pray for me. I can't tell you how many times I've done that and seen things shift in an instant. I mean, literally, like in an instant. Like, and you know that people started praying because all of a sudden it's like everything changes. Everything becomes clear. A peace comes that wasn't there. An understanding, a wisdom, a word. Someone calls out of the blue and, and says something to you. All these different things happen a lot of times immediately after asking for prayer. Recently, Patty was, was having a hard day, right? And she was feeling just overwhelmed. Like, like our, our schedules, we're, we are on track right now, you guys, to, to totally clearing up so many things. And it, it feels like being born again again. But, but, but about a month ago, it wasn't that way. Two weeks ago, it wasn't that way. And we were running, I mean, just nonstop. And Patty was having a day where she was just feeling overwhelmed. And so she sent out a text to um, a group of girls that, on the prayer team and, and just said, hey, I'm just feeling overwhelmed. And, and you know, told them a little bit what was going on and said, could you guys just pray for me? And what it, it, was it like right away? I mean... The peace came right away. Why? Because prayer matters. It does something and it's important. And if we understand that when we pray, we'll actually pray believing. And suddenly the things that we're praying for because we believe, Jesus said, you will have what you ask. If you don't value it, you won't believe that anything is happening. If you really believed something was happening, you would value it. And a lot of people don't value it for what it is, so they don't believe it does anything. So then when they pray, nothing happens. Because James says, when you ask, you must believe. Otherwise, expect to receive nothing. So this is vicious cycle where it's like, I don't really think prayer is important, but I know that I should because it's a Christian thing to do, so I'll do it and I'll go through the motions. But there's no belief in what I'm praying because there's no value because I don't really believe that it's actually going to do something. And because I don't believe that it's going to do something, my prayer is completely ineffectual according to the Word says that Elijah was a man just like us who prayed, but he believed. He believed. He had faith. And God did the things he asked. I just, I honestly think that if the church in general, everywhere, believed in the value of prayer and actually believed that what the Word said is true when it comes to prayer, we would see more prayers answered, we would have a higher value for it, and it would be this continual perpetual cycle the other way where because we believe, we see the things happen, and because the thing happened, we believe more, and because we believe more, we pray more, and because we pray more, we see more things, and it's this snowball versus going the other way where I go to it, I don't really value it because I don't really believe it. When I do pray, it's half-hearted with no faith behind it. I don't see what I thought was going to happen happen, so it causes me to value it even less, to believe even less, so I pray even less, and it's a snowball the other way. And I really believe that right now the enemy has the church trapped in in the wrong area, in the wrong snowball, going the wrong direction. And all it takes is for us to actually go to the Word and let the Word of God change what we think. Repent. Change the way you think. And when we see prayer, rather than seeing it as an obligation, we see it as a privilege. What a privilege that I can actually speak to the Creator of the universe face to face. That He hears my prayer. And that He's promised that anything I ask in His name, believing, would be done. God, what a privilege it is to come before You full of faith because of Your promise. See, it's not our faith that we have to work up. It's not like I have to sit there and work myself up. All right, I'm going to go in there and pray. I'm going to believe this thing. You know, you're not, it's not. Sometimes you hear people pray, and honestly, they're trying to talk themselves into something that their heart really doesn't believe, and their mouth is trying to do what their heart isn't. 
And so it's this long prayer, and it just goes on and on and on, and they're working themselves up into a fervor because their heart doesn't really believe, but their mouth thinks, if I keep saying it, maybe my heart will catch up. It's actually coming to a place of saying, God, why do I believe that when I pray, it's going to do anything? Like, be honest with ourselves. It, It all starts there with honesty, like having the integrity to say, God, for some reason, I don't get excited about prayer. For some reason, I don't really value prayer the way that Jesus did. God, for some reason, I don't really have a lot of faith when I pray. There's not really a lot of excitement in me if I'm being honest. And most of the time I do it because I said that I would or because I know that I should. So God, why is that? And then go to the Word and let the Word of God change the way that we think. Let our minds be renewed and transformed by the Word. So God, You said anything I ask in Your name, believing it would be done for me. You said that. That excites me because that's from your mouth and I know that your word is always true. That you're not a man that you should lie. There is no shadow of turning. I mean, that should start building excitement in me because you said if I ask in your name, Jesus, you spoke. When you spoke, the Son was created and when you spoke, you said that if I ask, up to now you've asked for nothing in my name, but I tell you anything you ask in my name, believing, it shall be done for you because I go to the Father. That's a promise from Jesus and suddenly there's this excitement because now Jesus said this, so I believe it. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Father who gives freely to all. But when you ask, you must believe that you will have what you say. Otherwise, you're like a man who is tossed about to and fro, unstable in all his ways, double-minded. Let that man expect to receive nothing. So there's a way I can go to him expecting to receive, and there's a way I can go to him and I should expect to receive nothing. And the only difference is I actually believe that he wants to do what I'm asking. If I value prayer, it's because I actually believe that. If I don't value prayer, it's because I don't believe that. And I will reap the result of whichever seed I'm sowing when I pray. Whether of unbelief to not seeing it happen, or belief to seeing it happen. And one will lead me to a higher value, and one will lead me to a lower level of devaluing it. And all of it has to do with what I believe. This is in your Bible. That's not like thus saith Roy or some theology that I came up with to try to get you excited about prayer. These are the words of Jesus. This is James writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's in your Bible. Whatever you ask in my name. You look that word whatever up in the Greek, it means everything, whatever. Whatever you ask in my name, believing, it shall be done. The only way that we'll believe is if we begin to value it. The only way we'll value it is if we begin to believe. They go hand in hand. So we pray for each other. Asking for prayer is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign that we believe His Word. It's actually a sign that we believe that everything He wrote is true. And that Jesus is our example. And if it was okay for Jesus to ask disciples to come and pray with Him, it's probably okay for us to ask people to come and pray with us. Jesus being our example is pretty amazing. We're going to get into some other stuff about that in a second. When did Peter get released from prison? What was going on when Peter got released from prison? They were all gathered in the home praying. This makes me, spins me for a loop here though. 
Because if they really believed that he was going to get released, why in the heck when the girl came and said that Peter was here, did they tell her, no, no way, you're crazy, go away? I think sometimes we really do believe it, but when it happens, we're still so caught off guard that he did it, that it caught, takes us a minute. I'm serious, it's okay. I don't think God was like, oh my gosh, i got to send Peter back to prison, they don't believe. Because the prayer was answered because of their belief. Like they literally were gathered in the home believing that he would release Peter from prison and praying. And their prayers join with Peter's prayers. And and God does what they're asking. And then when he does what they're asking, they're so surprised, so amazed, that they actually for a minute can't believe it because it takes a minute for their mind to catch up with what their heart really believed. See, it's fine if it's that way. It's fine if my heart believes something that takes my head a minute to get around. It's when something's in my head but not in my heart that I have a problem. Because... Above all things, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. So my heart believes as I'm praying, even though when my mind sees, when my eye sees it, it takes my brain a second to catch up. I think God's totally okay with that. I don't think he was wishing that he didn't release Peter from prison. I think he actually enjoys that he does things that are so amazing that even though we believe it in our heart, it takes our head a minute to catch up with what our heart believes. You ever been in that place where God does something and like you knew he was going to do it? You were praying and totally believing and then he does it and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Why? Because he's amazing. We should always stay in that place of being amazed. When's the last time that God amazed you? Being honest, how many of you guys in here in the last week have been amazed by the Father? How many of you haven't been amazed by him in the last week? Who would be honest enough to say, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's not because he's not amazing. It's just because a lot of times we lack the perspective to see what he's doing. If we had the right perspective, we would be a lot more amazed. And a lot of times our circumstances keep us from seeing things that he's doing. Or he's doing something that we don't see. And then one day we see it and we're amazed that day and we don't understand that he was actually doing it months ago, weeks ago. It's okay. It doesn't mean he's not moving. It just means that we're not seeing all right. So when we make prayer and intercession, intercession and prayer, he divides into two different things. There's a lot of teaching on intercession. I'm not going to try to teach intercession right now, but intercession says that we have one who, st- who is before the Father, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. What does that mean? It means he actually stands in our place before the Father and speaks. When we intercede for people, it's not us just praying for them. It's actually us stepping into their place before the Father and saying, God, I'm praying on their behalf. God, because they don't know what to pray, I'm standing before you and I'm praying these things as if they were saying it. God, would you move in this circumstance? Jesus, because he became a man, understands what we go through, is what Hebrews says. So he's able to intercede. Why? He's able to stand in our place and talk to the Father on our behalf because he understands what we're going through. Intercession is us understanding what someone's going through, seeing what they're going through, and stepping into their place and standing before the Father and saying, God, they don't understand what they're doing. But I, I, I just I pray for them. I lift them up. God, I, I intercede on their behalf. I'm standing here as if they themselves are standing here. And God, I'm just asking that you would move. I'm asking that you would answer prayers that they don't even know to pray because I'm standing here for them. I'm bringing this to your throne and I'm releasing this at your feet as though they themselves are doing it because they don't know. It's Jesus before the Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What's He doing? He's making intercession on our behalf the same way He does for eternity. 
It's him saying, if they knew what they were doing, they would say these things, so I'll say them for them because they don't know yet. Believing that one day they will. We also encourage each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build, one, build up one another just as you are also doing. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, You are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. You know, Paul is, is either the most prideful man in the world or he actually believes that he really is who, the, who God says he is. He, this is Paul writing again to a church that he probably persecuted some of their parents at least. And maybe some of them. It says, You are witnesses and so is God how, up, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. He's either forgot the man that he was, or he really believes the man he was no longer is for him to be able to say that to people that he once was persecuting and chasing and that were afraid for their lives. See, that's the Gospel in in a nutshell right there. Is the man who was the most feared man in Christianity being able to say, you saw how blamelessly we treated you. Wait, wait, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the last time you were here when you preached the gospel to us? Or are you talking about the time before that when you came with torches and pitchforks? I don't know what you're talking about with torches and pitchforks. Saul died. I'm talking about who I, Paul, came to you and did. Why? Because I really believe that the old me passed and that the new me has come. And I'll only answer before him for the things that the new me has done. I certainly am not going to answer to man for the things the old me did. (laughs) Yeah, quick. I do CrossFit. <laughs> Sometimes. So he says, you're witnesses and so is God. What's he saying? Even God. Even God. He understands. God doesn't look at me and judge me for the things that I've done wrong because I'm a new creation in Christ and the blood of Jesus covered those things. So he says, you guys and God know how blameless I was towards you. He's either the most prideful, boastful, deceived, and forgetful man that's ever walked the face of the earth, or he really believes this gospel's true. I'm betting, based on the way he lived his life, that he just really believed the gospel was true. And I'm betting that the second you get a hold of the gospel and believe it the way that he did, you'll say the same things that he did. And I'm betting there will be people who will call you boastful and prideful and ask you who you think that you are. In which case, you love them and gently respond to them. It doesn't really matter because I know who he says that I am. Who do you think you are? That's irrelevant. Because right now, my thoughts might not be his thoughts. What matters is who does he say that I am. I'll take what he says over what I think any day, and so should you. That's not being boastful or prideful. That's just being a believer of truth. Believing that there's one whose voice matters more than anyone's opinion. And that's who I'm living for. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's saying, listen, we wanted you guys to walk in a manner worthy of this glory. In other words, for the sacrifice of Jesus to be worth it and that that to be displayed in your life. For your life to be so changed that the sacrifice that Jesus made to be displayed in your life 
that you would walk. We, we have been exhorting you and imploring you and encouraging you. Sometimes the way that we fight is not to go after something ourselves, it's to encourage each other and make sure that each other are well armed for the battle at hand. Sometimes our encouragement means more than us actually going and doing something ourselves because there's some battles that we're called to fight for people and there's some battles that people are called to fight themselves. But what we say and what we do matters. Paul says that literally we can encourage and build each other up. That word there is oikodomeo. You know what that word means? That word there that says build up, oikodomeo. Do you know what that means? It means to construct as though building a house. He says you can encourage people and you're actually building something into their life that will remain. That your encouragement... See, why do you think gossip is so rampant in the church? Because it's the exact opposite of encouragement. Slander, gossip, talking badly about each other. That's why the Bible says, what does it say? It says to speak well of one another, put the best construction on what we do. If I can't find a way to speak well about it, then I should pray about it. And if, if praying about it doesn't feel like it's soon enough, then I should confront in love about it. But I certainly shouldn't gossip about it or slander about it. But it's the reason I believe that gossip is so rampant in the church because the enemy always tries to take the truth and distort it and flip it 180 degrees. It's why we see so much rampant stuff with sexuality. It's this beautiful thing that God created. Sexuality, our sexuality is beautiful. God created it for man and created it for women. And it's a beautiful, amazing thing in the way that He created it for. And the enemy comes along and distorts it and destroys it. And so uh, everybody, it's so, it gets so distorted that our young men and even our young women now, because studies show that they're catching up with each other in the, in the things that they look at and the things that they engage in, are so confused about sexuality that if they have a sexual desire, they think they're a pervert. Because we've failed to teach them that sexual desire was given to them by the Father and that has a beautiful use. And that one day they will enjoy everything that they were created for in the context of loving their husband, loving their wife. Why do we teach our young men and our young women that they're a pervert for something that God's placed within them that's beautiful? Because if we can fill them with shame and we can condemn them and make them feel like they're the only one, then the enemy has them isolated and alone and he'll have a heyday with them. And once you feel like you are something, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Once I think that's who I am, it might as well be who I am because it's who I'll act like. It's disgusting. It's a trick of the enemy. I'm telling you, parents, listen to me. Me and Patty have been talking about this a lot. We have got to start teaching our children from a young age the beauty of attraction and sexual desire one for the other. Teaching them why we have it, what it's for, and how it's to be used and the beauty of it. So that it's not the forbidden fruit hanging on the tree. So that when they have a desire, they don't feel like they're some kind of a pervert. And they don't feel condemned just because their body is reacting in a way that God created it to and they understand what it's for. So they're not confused and not finding answers from people who don't have answers at all. Because trust me, they'll find answers somewhere. Questions will always be answered. It's not whether they're going to be answered, it's who's going to be the one doing the answering. It should be us. Starting at a young age. What if we could teach our young men about the beauty of sex? 
to the point that they actually prayed for their spouse to guard the gift that God has given them so that on their wedding day they could present that one to the other? What if they saw every woman they saw as someone who carried a gift only to be given to their husband and they actually could pray for them that they would remain pure? What if young women, what if our young girls could start seeing that these men were created to be fathers and created to actually be able to give themselves to one woman and they started praying for every man that they knew, that they were friends with, they had a relationship with, and they began to pray for them that they would keep themselves pure so that they could present that pure and defiled gift to their, their spouse on their wedding day. And rather than feeling like a pervert, they thought, man, that's, she's beautiful. Maybe she'd be my wife. That'd be awesome, God. But if not, she's going to be someone's wife. God, protect her and keep her until that day. What if our, that's the way our kids began to think about that? What if they had that understanding? They began to see it the way God created it to be seen. Suddenly, it's not some dirty weird thing that we don't talk about. It's a beautiful part of life, just as natural as anything else that's part of life. We could do that. Like literally, we could start with our kids and we could do that. And then imagine what their kids will be taught. Imagine what their friends will see. Imagine if your son was the one who when a group of guys were talking about a girl stepped in and said, hey guys, listen, that could be one of our wife one day. Instead of talking about her that way, we should probably be praying for her and praying for ourselves. All right, well, here's the thing we've got to walk in it ourselves. Sometimes I think we're afraid to talk about this stuff because people aren't walking in it ourselves and we're afraid to talk to our kids that way because of the things that are going on in our lives. Stop. Understand that your responsibility to walk in purity didn't end when you got married. Because then you have authority when you speak to your children because you're not trying to tell them to do something that you're not actually doing yourself. It'd be good even if they listen to you if you're not walking it in yourself. You know, Jesus said the Pharisees do that. And he said, listen, do what, do, do, take what they say and, and uh, the things that are true, do them. Just don't follow them into the ditch. But man, it's even better when you can stand in front of them and say, this is how dad lives and this is how you were created to live. This is how mom lives and this is how you were created to live. This is the way mom sees men. This is the way dad sees women. And that's what you were created for and invite our kids into something that we're walking in. Where was I at? Oh, that felt really strong on my heart to share that. And I honestly believe we need to keep, yeah, we need to talk about this stuff. It's not going away. It's getting talked about. Who's controlling the conversation? This conversation's not going to stop as long as there's birds and bees there's going to be these kind of conversations going on. As long as little boys and little girls are born into this world, this type of conversation is going to be happening. It's who's actually controlling the dialogue and who's speaking and who's giving clear answers and who's giving something that's beautiful and full of hope. And if our advice to our kids is don't do it, that's not good enough. (laughs) Not good enough. If our advice to our kids is don't do it until the time is right and here's why, that's getting better. 
if our advice is to, see, to teach our children how to see each other in a way that's pure, lovely, beautiful, that's even better. All right. Oh, yeah, the reason that gossip's rampant in the church. Well, because if, if our words can actually build something like a house, then that means our words can probably tear down something like a wrecking ball. Otherwise, there would, be no, there would be no instruction in the Word to build each other up by encouraging each other. But your words actually matter. What if we saw the words that we spoke to each other as something who's either coming alongside someone and building them up or something that's coming in like a wrecking ball and smashing things down? Like literally, he says, and so build one another up. It's the same word for a home builder. Something is actually being created when I speak and something's being built when I speak and I should be mindful of the fact that my words are making a difference when I speak them to somebody and I can actually come alongside you and I can speak something into your life that comes along and shores something up. There might be a part of your life that's a little bit shaky. I can actually come along and I can help brace that up by the words that I speak so the next time the attack comes you're better prepared and better equipped to stand against it. Or I can come alongside you and I can tear you down with my words. I can say things that destroy. I can say things that hurt. We can gossip. We can slander. We can speak things that actually tear things down rather than build things up. And Paul says, listen, when you encourage each other, listen, I mean, and literally, it, it, it's, it's in, in, and then part of that word too where he talks about in the next verse when he says we exhort and, we, and all those things, is he says um, exhortation, it's a word that means to call near, to invite or invoke. In other words, it's saying, listen, I understand what Jesus died for you to live in. And even if right now you're not living there, I want to invite you into that life. With the words that I speak and the life that I live, I want to invite you into something. I want to invoke you into something. I, I exhort you. I encourage you. These things are things that we do with our words. And you know the truth about it is, is nobody can stop you from doing them. Now they may choose not to receive it. That's on their end. But nobody can stop you from encouraging them. Nobody can stop you from interceding for them. And nobody can stop you from praying for them. But, there's another way. And this means actually physically stepping into people's circumstances and helping. And this one actually needs our permission. See, I don't need your permission to pray for you. I can pray for you and you are, you are completely defenseless against my prayers. I don't need your permission to intercede for you. I don't need your permission to encourage you. I can speak an encouraging word into your life before you can put your fingers over your ears. It's already done. But for me to actually physically step into your life and physically help you carry a burden, I need your permission. And you can stop me from doing that. Turn your Bibles to the uh, book of Matthew. Chapter 27. This is talking about Jesus as he's getting ready to be crucified. It says, then this chapter 27, verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. You notice that Zach talked about this, that they took Joseph's coat off of him when they wanted to kill him. Because it took forgetting who he was in order to do the things that they were planning to do to him. 
They took Jesus' robe off of Him and put a, a robe of their own on Him. If we're not careful, we'll do that to people. We'll forget who they really are. We'll label them by something else and that'll give us permission to treat them as someone that they're not. In order for them to treat Jesus as less than the Son of God, they had to take the robe that was on Him off and put a different robe that they made on Him. If we're not careful, I'm telling you we'll do that with people. We'll lose sight of who they really are. We'll put a robe of something that we've made upon them. We'll label them a certain way and we'll give ourselves permission to treat them as less than loving because they're A, fill in the blank. And we'll justify our anger because that's who they are. So they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. They knelt before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed began to beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away to, be, to crucify him. You know why they put the, gar- the, the real robe back on him? Uh, they don't understand, I don't think. But because he really was the king of the Jews. And he was going to die in his identity. And for all of us. It's why Pilate wrote, Jesus the king of the Jews, and all the Pharisees were angry and they tried to get him to change it. And they said, no, 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 don't say that. Say he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. What was he saying? This man really is the king of the Jews and he's going to die as who he really is. And you're going to have to look up at him and see that sign and know that this is really who he is because one day you're going to be held accountable for that. So they put his robe back on him led him off to be crucified. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. So just picture this for a minute. Here's Jesus. He's still fully God, fully man. He's having the sin of the world about to be put upon him. But it still says that at this moment, while he was on the cross, he could have called for legions of angels to come. So he's still fully God. He's still fully capable of performing every miracle that he ever performed. And he's walking and he's carrying a cross and they grab a man named Simon and they say to him, help him carry the cross. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, I don't need your help. He doesn't say, don't you know who I am? How could you help me? He humbles himself and he lets Simon carry his cross for him. Why? Same reason he was baptized even though he was spotless. Because He's our example in all things. And if He asks us to do something, He'll never ask us to do something that He was unwilling to do Himself. And He humbled Himself and allowed another man to come alongside and carry His burden for a while. And if Jesus was willing to do that, there's a good chance that we should be too. It's not a sign of weakness to allow someone to carry a burden that's too heavy for you to carry. For allow someone to come alongside and help. In fact, it's one of the strongest things that you'll ever do. Is to, in your weakness, say, hey, I need some help. I'm carrying something and it's just getting too heavy. Could you help me? That's not weakness. That's strength. That's humility. That's understanding that I was not made to walk alone. That it's not good for man to be alone. It's understanding that God put you in my life for a reason and sometimes the load that I'm carrying. And listen, if we never come, we said this last week, I just want to tell you, if we never come to a place where what we're carrying feels too heavy to carry alone, we might not be carrying the cross that we're called to carry. Because if Jesus allowed another man to carry His burden for a while, there's a good chance that sometime in my life I should too. 
And it doesn't make me less of a man. It doesn't make me less of a Christian. It doesn't make me less holy, less spiritual. It makes me just like Jesus. Self-sufficiency has to die. I'm just going to close up with this. I believe the greatest way to living this kind of life of encouragement, of praying for each other, of interceding for each other, and of physically stepping into each other's lives. Listen, here's the thing. Of, the, of those four things, there's three of them that you can do whether I let you or not, but that fourth one allow, make, requires my permission. I have to be willing to let you step in and help me. And I don't think that happens in our life right now, in the age that we live in, apart from relationships. To actually know each other and be known by each other. To actually trust that you love me enough that if you come alongside and you want to help me, that I'll be vulnerable enough to say to you, yeah, I need some help. And that I'll let you know what's going on. Because sometimes we carry a cross that people can see and sometimes we're carrying a cross that nobody knows about. And so sometimes someone could come to you and they could say, hey, you know, you look like you're struggling changing that tire. Let me give you a hand and hold it still while you pull on the jack. That's fine, but then there's sometimes where you're carrying a load that nobody knows about, but they can tell something's wrong, and they come to you and they say, listen, I've been watching you, and I see that there's a burden you're carrying, and I don't know what it is, but I would love to step in and help you carry it. Now there's something required on my end. Now it requires me being vulnerable, being real, and being open enough and humble enough to say, yeah, this is what's going on. And I'd love to, for you to help me with this. To not think that I don't need any help. To not be prideful. To not be afraid. That's why relationship as family is so important because it understands this. It says to you, I don't care what you tell me. I'm still going to be your brother. If I come to you and say, man, it looks like you're struggling with something. I don't know what it is, but I just I, every time I see you, my heart breaks for you, and I feel like there's something you're carrying that you're not meant to carry alone. I would love to step in and help you carry that. I'm saying to you, I don't care what you tell me. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be here. I'm not going to see you as less than who I believe that you are, no matter what you open up and share with me. The good, the bad, the ugly. Because you could look at me and you could say, man, right now I'm just, I've been praying for this person for so long and I feel like they're so close to breakthrough, but I really just, I just there's just this frustration that's trying to come in and, I, and I feel, I'm, I'm just hearing over and over again that it's hopeless, they're too far gone, that they've had so many opportunities and they've blown it. And I may, that might be just it's like the holiest cross that you could carry and I would say, man, that's awesome. Let me step in and pray with you. Who are we praying for? Even if you don't want to tell me who, that's fine. Just know that I'm going to step in and I'm going to pray. But I'm praying for you too because I think that I can build you up. And let me encourage you in this. Let me speak something that strengthens up those wobbly trusses that are threatening to have the roof fall over. Let me speak an encouraging word to you and remind you that God said His word would not return to him void without accomplishing that which He sent it forth. That the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That Elijah was a man just like us who prayed. And God heard his prayers and answered his prayers. And that whatever you pray, believing in Jesus' name, that it will be done. And I just want to come alongside. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to encourage you. You might look at me and you might say, yeah, I, 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 I got pain in my back. Okay, let me help you with that. Because I believe there's one who heals. Let me pray for you. And let's see Jesus do what he does.
And let's believe that you were not meant to walk through life pained and crippled because of something in your back. We're going to believe that he can restore your body to original creative value. And you may look at me and say, man, I've been struggling with and name the most ugly sin that you can imagine. And I'm not going to be shocked. I'm not going to run away and I'm not going to see you differently. I'm going to say, you know what? Let me come alongside and pray with you. Hey, let me just tell you this. That's not who you are. That is not who you are. The Father doesn't look at you and see you for that mistake. He sees you as the Son. And the fact that it bothers you, the fact that you're burdened by it, means that you're not the person that you were and that He's actually changed your heart because you hate it because you know it's not who you are either. If you thought that's who you were, you'd just live in it and enjoy it, but you know it's not and you can't be comfortable anymore. And I'm excited about that. Listen, will you do me a favor? Whenever you have the thought for that thing, whenever that thing pops into your head, would you call me? I'll, I'll, I will, I will, I'm telling you right now, I will answer the phone if I am physically possible whenever you call me. And all I want to do is, and I'm not going to condemn you, I'm not going to scold you, I'm going to encourage you and speak the truth to you so that the lie that's trying to come in doesn't have a place in your life. And you simply calling me is you saying and taking a step because something has to happen between the thought and the action differently than what's been happening because the thought has kept leading to an action. And let's put a step in there in between the thought and the action where truth can come and take hold. Would you just pick up your phone and call me before? And I will never, ever, ever judge you. I will never look down on you. I will not take the position of the Pharisees and say, I can't believe he's in this position. Are you kidding me? As long as he's been saved, he's dealing with this. That, what in the world is wrong? With? I will never do that because I'll understand my need for grace and I'll have nothing but grace for you in the moment because I haven't forgotten who I was apart from his grace. And I'll never stop seeing you apart from his grace either. But that takes a two-way commitment. There's something required of us. You have to actually be willing and you have to actually say, you know what? I trust you. I believe that you love me. I believe that you care about me. And I believe that I'm more than that mistake. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to let you in. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to open myself up. But I trust the Christ in you. And that's how we bear each other's burdens. That's how we carry each other's crosses. It's not forever. Does it mean I'll never be able to do this on my own? It just means right now, I would love to say that I'm doing this on my own, but the truth of the matter is, it's not working on my own. Would you help me? That's why I want us to become a family, like a legit family. That everyone here has a relationship with somebody to the level where they can open up and let them in and say, hey, this thing's getting heavy. I'm going to be fine. Right now, I don't feel like it. Can you help me? I know the truth. I really do. But right now, I'm not living the truth. Can you help me? If we love each other, we actually open ourselves up and be vulnerable and form real relationships where we're known and we know. That's not hard. Everybody can't have that level of relationship with everybody, but everybody can have that level of relationship with somebody. Find your people and start opening up your heart, opening up your doors, opening up your time. 
and building those kind of relationships with people that will love you and that you can love. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that, Jesus, you're such a beautiful example. And I, th- I just thank you that you humbled yourself to the point where you allowed someone to carry your cross as an example for us. That you humbled yourself to the point of asking people to come and stand watch and to pray as an example for us. And that you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf before the Father as an example to us. I just ask God that in this house and in your body everywhere that, that, that the church gathers, that you would begin to just open people's eyes to the value of vulnerable, real, authentic relationship. Not some cheap copy, not some surfacey imitation, but real relationship that has no problem knowing and being known. I ask that you would give us a grace, God, that we would never see people for what they've done, but we would always see them for who you say that they are. That there is nothing that could be told to us that would shock us or scare us off. I just thank you for that. I thank you for knitting our hearts together. In Jesus' name, amen.